Today's sponsor is Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who uses up all of the Wi-Fi on an airplane, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair, we have two great guests, Paul English and Tracy Kidder. Paul is the CEO and co-founder of the Boston-based travel service Lola, and previously he co-founded Kayak.com. And Tracy needs no introduction. He's a writer who won the Pulitzer Prize for his seminal 1981 book, The Soul of a New Machine, which is a classic in technology reporting. Now he's authored a new book about Paul called A Truck Full of Money, One Man's Quest to Recover from Great Success. Paul and Tracy, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I'm going to start with Tracy about your history. I think people know who you are, but you wrote one of the greatest books, early books on technology, and now you're back to technology again, Um, although you've written many books about various different topics. Talk a little bit about your history for listeners who don't. Well, I I came upon that story uh, not out of expertise, but just curiosity. Mm -hmm. So 35 years ago, I wrote a book about a team of hardware engineers who designed and debugged the hardware of a new computer. And it was a success, to my surprise, to many people's surprise. Why is that? Well, it you know, it was... Classic. It's a classic. Well, it wasn't a classic until um, it was published in the New York Times anointed it a classic. I see. Know? Okay. Well, it was a very anyway, good book. thank you. Yeah. And it made, made it possible for me to do something which I, I consider a great privilege. A lot of people thought that I, in the aftermath of that, uh, you know, that I knew a lot about computers and that I was going to write about them forever. Right, right. But... That book had given me suddenly the opportunity to explore the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. A great privilege. And I've done that basically for 30 years, really following my curiosity. So I'm asking about that book because everything has changed since then. And you were writing about a certain era. What was the subtitle at the time? It was the sole... uh, No subtitle. No subtitle. I hate subtitles. Oh, do you? (laughs) You got a a good one right You like this one. Yeah, Yeah, it didn't have a subtitle. No, they didn't used to insist on them. Oh, I see. Um, So, but at the time, what are your recollections from exploring that at the time, at that book? Because it did open a lot of people's eyes. You wrote in a really uh, normalized way about tech, which had been sort of run by Brahmins of tech and very Mm. inaccessible. Um, And you really showed a great axis and showed a thing that now gets celebrated all the time, entrepreneurship and sort of creation. Um, What was going on in in Massachusetts at the time uh, before it lost everything to Silicon Valley was was something called the Mm mini-computer. And it was the first computer that took the the machines out of the sort of holy shrines of laboratories and away from the white-coated owners of them <laughs> and uh the engineers loved the thing and enormous fortunes were being made you know right. and companies that were very young of course most companies as then as now were going out of business right it was a pretty high high pressured time and, and this team that i happened onto that was building this computer and god knows how i got inside here it's still a, mis- bit of a mystery where did you meet them where do- well my editor my longtime editor richard todd was had gone to college with this guy tom west mm-hmm. sounds like an invented name <laughs> <laughs> yes. and he was a wacky guy uh he was running this team a very strange enigmatic person and he told me this bizarre story about it. The, the essence of it was that they were building this new computer 
pretty new for its time, but it was really to rival d- digital equipment. Right. was then the big deck. The big one. I covered deck. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, I just <laughs> aged myself immediately. That's great. It was but super dull coverage. Was it? Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. they... This wasn't really dull. They were building this machine essentially against their company's wishes, yep. trying to save the company. That mm-hmm. was the the idea. It was hilarious. I, and what I ended up with was, you know, I was an English major. I had come to this subject of what would now be the equivalent, the scorn that is now heaped on the humanities was being heaped on engineers. Right. And I shared in it, but I was wonderfully surprised. I mean, who knew that engineers could be passionate esthetes? Right. And I, you know, I felt like, I'd seen something really exciting and interesting, and and then I'd like to go someplace else. Right, you know? right, which you did. We yeah. give give everyone a, like a little tour. You you've written about everything. Well, after that, I wrote, house, I wrote. Yeah, I got really. I had bought I'm an a old huge house. house builder. So. I had all bought an old house, and I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And I started trying to fix it up. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really a ruin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a really dangerous carpenter for a while. Yeah, you know, I yeah. spent a lot of time in emergency rooms. I hired rooms. people. Yeah, well, I, I did couldn't at the time, but yeah, the I was a regular at the ER, and. Then I wrote, and that book worked out pretty well. That that turned out to be sort of a menage a trois without sexual connotations. Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. a, the builders, the architect, this, these homeowners, and they had a lot of fights. Right. I still like that book quite mm-hmm, a bit. Me too. Uh, although I don't look back at it. And I wrote a book about an elementary school teacher in a kind of blown away old mill town in Massachusetts, a mm-hmm. tough town, uh, largely Puerto Rican. Uh, she was um, not not a superstar teacher, but a really good and dedicated one. And I, you know, I didn't want a, the superstar right. teacher. That was a sad book, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could sort of see the fates of some of these five kids in fifth grade, and some of that did play out. Um, it makes me, it's still that way today. Right. It's awful, <laughs> but that's another subject. Uh, then I wrote a book about a nursing home, these two old guys in a nursing home, and it didn't do all that well, but I think it's a good book. I never published anything I didn't think was, was good, or as good as I could make it. This was really about, mostly about these two old guys who were doing something more interesting than learn, than playing bingo, which was making friends, right. you know, in this vestibule to eternity. And then um, I'd gone off to Haiti to do, a, to do a story for the New Yorker magazine about American soldiers. And that's where I met Paul Farmer. Mm-hmm. But he kind of scared me. I mean, the whole thing, it was Haiti shocked me. And I came back and wrote a book about this town near where I live called Northampton, where mm-hmm. Smith College is. Mm-hmm. Very sort of trendy little town. But it was through the eyes of a cop was a hilarious guy. That book was called Hometown. And then I realized, you know, I'd let six years go by, I realized that I really should have been trying to pursue this guy, Paul Farmer. He's pretty interesting. Right. And fortunately for me, he let me hang around with him for the profile for The New Yorker. Sure. And then that turned mm-hmm. into my book, Mountains Beyond Mountains. And I think that's probably the best thing I've done. That was the best story I was given. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote a book about a protege of his. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to end this. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's sort of a protege. He, he would resent it. A, a guy from Africa, a young medical student who had, who had escaped both civil war, ethnic civil war in his own country, Burundi, and then had escaped from the genocide in Rwanda, had come to the United States, has, has now rebuilt an extraordinary health facility in his native country, which is still one of the poorest in the world. I, that book is called Strength and What Remains. And then... I think these last three books of mine, well, The Mountains Beyond Mountains Strength and then uh, The Truck Full of Money, I sort of think of them now as my partners in Health Triumvirate because I Ah, met Paul. Yeah. Paul was a member of the Board of Partners in Health. This is Paul English, not Paul. Paul English, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. He likes to call himself Paul, too. (laughs) (laughs) But but I met him because at fundraisers, I I didn't know too much about him. Uh But it occurred to me after all those years, that it might be interesting to go back and look at this world that I had Yeah, started fled. in, that yeah. you had left. 
And uh, yeah, sorry. So you just met him at fundraisers. This is I met him at fundraisers. We talked, and uh, I heard some. You know, I heard he was an effective member of the board. And I, and I asked him at some point if he'd show me around this world, and he said, "Sure." Mm-hmm. Know, and he did, and then. At a certain point, it came obvious to me that he really ought to be my subject as mm-hmm. well as my guide. Mm-hmm. His career spanned a huge part of the digital age, right. you know, from a little after the advent of the personal computer all the way up to now, of mm-hmm. course, the uh, World Wide Web and the mobile app and so on. And also, he had um, he had played parts, roles. That he, his experience of it was very broad right. because he'd been right. a programmer, a super coder, then a then a manager of programmers, and then. A, Builder founder. of companies. Yeah, yeah, a founder. So I put it to him, and he it took him pause. So, for, he paused for some months. What was your conception of what you were doing here? Because it's a little like the first one in a lot of ways. It's it, it has similar themes. Well, I didn't I didn't really know what I was doing to tell you the truth. I didn't know what he was going to do. That's mm-hmm. one of the things about nonfiction. I, I found myself thinking the other night. You now, fiction writers like to say that their char- they their characters surprise them, mm-hmm. and, and I've always thought that was. Um, False humility. Okay. Because what's really surprising them is their own brilliance. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to bring in Paul now. Paul, uh, Paul, let, talk a little bit about your background so listeners sure. can understand it. Sure. I grew up in Boston. Mm-hmm. I was number six of seven kids. Ah, you're like a, a cliche. Yeah. My dad was a pipe fitter. My mom was a social worker. And I got bounced around kind of school to school. I guess today you'd say ADHD, but I don't know what they called me back then. And I ended up going to high school spirited. in Boston. Go, spirited. Yeah, spirited. That's a good word. I'm going to use that I one I get that on my kid, one of my kids. Um, went to college in Boston, worked full-time, went to school at night, and I worked as a programmer, and then have been doing a series of startups for the last 20 years. Right, right. So you, how did you feel with Tracy, who had this huge history and reputation, yeah, wanting so to do a profile? I had first learned of Tracy through Solo New Machine, which mm-hmm. I read back when I was in college, and... I found the book breathtaking. I thought the clarity of the writing was kind of shocking to me. It was a new way to talk about tech. It was a completely different yeah. way. A lot of writing about tech was very fancy. Mm-hmm. And Tracy was able to make it like really, really approachable. So I, I just loved the book. And then when I ended up joining the board for Partners in Health, working with Dr. Paul Farmer, I certainly became a huge fan of Mountains when he wrote mm-hmm. that book, Mountains Beyond Mountains. When Tracy first approached me, as he was thinking about doing something back in tech, I was honored, and he's a fun guy to hang out with, and we spent some time talking about who were some of the personalities in tech in the Bay Area and in Boston. And when he asked me at some point about maybe doing the book about me, I was humbled and nervous, and I think I initially said no, and it took me a little while to agree uh, to be the subject of the book. But mostly, I think there's two reasons why I agreed to do the book. One is Tracy is actually a really fun guy to hang out with. Mm-hmm. I just really, we spent three years together now, and I re- wow. just really enjoyed traveling with him, and mm-hmm. he just has amazing stories, and it's fun to talk to Tracy about books, about authors, so I've liked hanging out with him. And then I was hoping that through his work and us spending time together, that he could also tell stories of people who were important to me. So, for example, I have a mentor named Tom White who passed away a few years ago at age 90, and Tom was a really important person to me. And the time I spent with Tracy allowed Tracy to get to know Tom a lot better. And mm-hmm. Tracy ultimately did decide to write about Tom as part of this book, which thrilled me. So you, what you're very well known for is creating Kayak.com. Explain that for people. I, we all use it. I use it all. I just used it the other day. 
Yeah, kayak was fun. We um, start Steve Hafner and I started it in January mm-hmm. 2004, and back then, so Steve was one of the co-founders of Orbits, and mm-hmm. he and a venture capitalist in Boston named Joel Cutler had kind of hatched the idea for building a search engine, not a store where you buy travel, but just a pure search engine. And I don't think we were actually the first company to do that, but we certainly pursued it with some aggression. And I think the biggest thing I spent my time on in my years at Kayak was just really obsessing about the team, who are the people to recruit, how they work together, debugging it when people don't work together, and just making sure the team was really productive, really enjoyed each other, and then make sure we were laser-focused on the problem we are trying to solve. And back then in 2004, there were a couple of observations I had about the travel, travel industry. One is that no one site in 04 actually had a list of every airline and every hotel. Mm-hmm. And so for us it was, why don't we create a search engine that has absolutely everything in it? And for some reason, people hadn't done that before. Like Expedia would only show hotels where they got a commission. They wouldn't show you every hotel. We showed you every hotel. And the second observation I had about travel in 04 was a lot of the popular sites were what I would describe as bloatware. There was just enormous amount of stuff going on in the screen. And there was pictures of beaches. TripAdvisor. Oh, it was crazy the amount of ads on the site. And we used to joke in the early years, our early year, first year of kayak, about creating almost like the Craigslist of travel. We really wanted to be stripped stripped down Mm -hmm. and simple. And it was a fun problem to work on. And I was at kayak for 10 years. And sometimes I make fun of my time there and think like I spent 10 years working on four pages, search query, search, uh, flight query, flight result, hotel query, hotel result, because Mm -hmm. those are sort of the four most common pages. But we found a lot of things to um, optimize and innovate on. And I just had a blast working there. Yeah. So let's, we're going to, when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the stories in in the book itself and and how you told them and what, what you all learned from them. But before we go, I just want to ask one more question in terms of when did you start? You just started talking, essentially, right? Correct? You just started. Yeah, it's hard to remember, to tell you the truth. Right. I, I, I mean, I had been talking to him about other things before mm-hmm. that, and I was just hunting around for something, the next thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's what, it's the, for me, I realized that if, if this is the hardest part about your job, you're pretty lucky. But yeah. the hardest part for me has always been trying to figure out what to do next. Find the subject, yeah. The next one. Because I once wasted two years because I was worried that if I started the wrong topic, I would waste a year. Right. <laughs> you know? And you didn't come to Silicon Valley, where no disrespect to Boston or anything else, but it is the center yeah, I know, of everything. Yeah, I know. No, I, uh, well, I came with Paul, but yeah. uh, I thought it was more interesting in Boston. All I don't right. know, somehow. All right. When we get back, we're talking to Paul English and Tracy Kidder. Paul is the founder of, one of the founders of Kayak.com, and a longtime entrepreneur. Tracy is the Pulitzer Prize winning writer who wrote Soul of a New Machine, and he has a new book about Paul called A Truck Full of Money, One Man's Quest to Recover from Great Success. And we're going to talk about what that means in a second. This show is brought to you by SoFi. And today I'm talking to Andrew Dietrich, a member of SoFi's entrepreneur program. SoFi is a new kind of finance company pairing great service with low rates. The entrepreneur program is just one of its awesome member benefits, providing entrepreneurs with an opportunity to pause their student loans while they launch their businesses. Andrew, what does final mean? Final is the last credit card you'll ever need, because instead of one single number that's attached to all your payments, we give you multiple numbers that you can establish, and if you lose your physical card or something happens to one of your relationships, the rest are entirely unaffected. I see. Interesting. So So what were the biggest obstacles in starting your company? 
So as a founding team, we came entirely outside of payments. Right. So no. So you didn't know anything about it. Nothing. So ignorance is it, your problem. Okay. Right. <laughs> ignorance, but it was also our strength. Everyone said if we knew how hard it would be, we wouldn't do it in the first right. place. Yeah, that's yeah. typical for a startup. So how did your student loans affect your decisions as an entrepreneur? You had some student loans, correct? Yeah. I mean, just from a base level, it's a payment you have to worry about every month. Right. So did you have a, a lot of them? Uh, yes, I went to business school. Oh so dear. Very non-traditional wow. path to start a company straight out of business school, and you know had to use my savings. Thankfully, with SoFi, it was nice because it was a large monthly payment of debt I was able to put into forbearance for a year as I got my startup going. Learn more about SoFi and student loan refinancing at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. We're here with Paul English and Tracy Kidder. Tracy's a well-known author who wrote many books, including The Soul of a New Machine. And he has written a book about Paul English, the founder of Kayak, called A Truck Full of Money, One Man's Quest to Recover from Great Success. Uh, Tracy, why did you title it this? This is from, Uh, I I mean, I get it from media, but tell me with recovering from great success. What was your point? Boy, it's complicated. Well, I I think, and now I'm speaking for Paul, and it's a little embarrassing when he's here. Mm -hmm. All he can answer also. (laughs) Right. Paul, I think, has always had a fairly uh, complicated relationship with money. Mm-hmm. I mean, once he once said to me, you know, growing up we didn't have any money, so why do I get to have money? It doesn't feel comfortable to me. He also feels that money should always be moving around. It doesn't. It's a fiction, mm-hmm. but and and it exists to promote trade and the building of things and so on. So to hoard it, he feels, is a disaster. I think that suddenly having $120 million stick to you uh, before taxes, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was, a, it was upsetting for him. More ups- It's not the kind of problem that would bring tears to your eyes, no. but you know, it was, it was an enormous success, and I think he was uh, excited about it. He also, if I can break, get into mm-hmm. this, so sure. Paul's bipolar. Mm-hmm. He had conquered, which is a part, big part of the book. It is a big part of the book. I yeah. think it's an important part um, because, for one thing, it shows you that you can have a serious problem like that and and, and overcome it. He had, with the help of psychiatrist finally found a drug that curbed the lows, the mm-hmm. depressions, terrible depressions, I think the worst part of it. But he had, had not found one to, to work on the, hy- the other side, the hypomania. And it, partly, I think, he hadn't, because it, it was an awfully hard thing to give up. It, right. Um, it has its liabilities. It also has its advantages. Right. And I think great pleasures. And I think what I saw, when I, when I came, I didn't know that I was coming in right at the time when Kayak was about to be sold. Mm-hmm because SEC re- regulations would have prevented Paul from telling me. Mm-hmm. But this is a moment of big success. He's had a lot of successes before, but now suddenly all these things that he's been doing, he was a pretty big donor to, to partners in health, and I think he gave them a million bucks at one time when he was living on borrowed money. You know, now he suddenly had a chance to do some pretty big things, and mm-hmm. uh, he's an engineer. He wants to make, make, things make, work. That, make that money work. But he's also, got, as they say in Boston, he's got a big hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, you know, he wanted to make the, the philanthropy work. He doesn't like suffering. Well, these are all the things that drew me to him, by the way. But he was also battling with this hypomania, and, which at times just got, I think, kind of got in his way. I mean, he tried to get a gun control group going to battle the NRA, but it never got off the ground. He, he spent a fair amount of time and money on a, a driving game app, mm-hmm. which was designed to curb teenagers' bad driving habits, but I think it, what it really did do was curbed his own a little mm-hmm. bit because he had something like 70 moving violations mm-hmm. over 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, wow. uh, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Um, but he didn't get a single one after he right. the game and started playing it with the beta versions with, with friends. Mm-hmm. But it was, I think he, you know, he took a chunk of that money and put it in a revocable charitable trust and then 
kind of set aside the whole question of what he was going to do about it. And at a certain point, after a while, beginning to think, when's he going to get back to that? Is he going to get back to that? Right, right. And of course he did. But, but I, it seemed to me like this was a problem. I mean, he, and, and what was he going to do next for a company? He, he, he was clearly going to leave Kayak. And, mm-hmm. and then he started a new company. And he got obsessed. Paul likes that word. and it went, It's not usually a hyperbole when, mm-hmm. when he uses it. Um, but he got obsessed with the design of the office of this new company, which he was really making into a work of art. You know, it was, But he, his two colleagues, these guys who had worked for them for 20 years and more, got started to get alarmed because they thought, is this going to be a, a company or is this going to be a, An a nightclub? Yeah, what was yeah. supposed to be a nightclub office? Yeah. Anyway, you know, I mean, at the same time, and this is interesting to me, I'll just say two more things about this. This guy sounds like he's out of control. Well, he very adroitly managed to raise $20 million for this new mm-hmm. company w- with basically... No business plan at all. It sounds like most companies in Silicon Valley. Oh, okay. So. Well, I thought that was kind of impressive. Business as usual. He was quite adroit at it. Yeah. I mean, perfectly rational. The other thing is, I Paul used to have a very violent temper. I have never seen a more well-controlled person. I've never seen him lose his mm-hmm. temper. There's a love story in my book, too, and, and the other party sh- says she's never seen it either. Mm-hmm. But... Just to give you an example, here we are. Here we are in traffic, Paul and I, and one of Boston's epic traffic. Tours. Right, of which there are. Oh, they're having just gone through one. Yeah. I can feel your pain. I'm about to jump out of my skin, you know, or at least out of the car. Paul's sitting there looking at the grass and saying, "How interesting the patterns of wind is making in it." Or, and when he sees my agitation, he starts instructing me in what in Thich Nhat Hanh's advice about mm-hmm. make, looking at the, the red lights and the the brake brake lights and imagining the smiling face of Buddha there. You know, and I, I'm an English major, so, mm-hmm. and I have a very uh, overdeveloped sense of irony. So ordinarily, I would have sort of thought of that. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. But this worked. Mm-hmm. It really worked. Paul was not an English major. He took all the stuff that he studied seriously, and it worked for him. And, and, and I find it very impressive. I saw him, this, this old woman, neighbor of his, half destroyed his garage and half destroyed one of his favorite cars. Paul, he likes cars. And I, you know... She'd been very nasty to him in the past. I, I was looking out the window when this, this happened to his house. and What did he do? Did he come out yelling at her? He did not. He came running out and comforted her. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was quite remarkable. So, I've, I don't know. Where have I I've got, Fine. I've got it's fascinating. So, Paul, talk a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur, too. Because, you know, you, you have all these different things. And I don't consider them liabilities. As you know, many people in tech have different afflictions that they turn into an advantage, really. Whether it's an Asperger's type syndrome or socially awkward, mostly that's mo- that's most of it, um, or a hypomania that does get you to where you want to go in terms of being creative. Right now in Silicon Valley, there's a whole group of people taking ayahuasca. You heard about this? It's no. the new thing. You might want to do a piece on it. Um, it's a drug from Peru, and they like to take it to come up with startups. Anyway, talk a little bit about that, like be, creating a company and the, the journey of that and what you were, while you were struggling with this at the same time. Yeah. As Tracy said a moment ago, so I'm bipolar. I had, you know, near crippling depression in my twenties. It was pretty bad. Um, that left me housebound for periods of time. And I was lucky that I found a drug which ended up working quite well for protecting the lows. But on the highs, I had been through a cycle of different drugs that I would find a drug that would work, and then it would stop working after a year or two. My brain would kind of rewire itself around that drug, and I would find another one and another one. And I've never been able to completely stabilize it. But then, you know, as Trace was saying, 
I'm not sure I want to completely get rid of it because there are some advantages to it. The manic side has strengths and weaknesses. And the bad part about being manic is I can go many, many days and sometimes weeks with extremely small amounts of sleep. I end up having racing thoughts. I end up at some point finding people to be irrelevant because it feels to me, so I get all these filled with grandiosity, all these ideas, and it feels like people are too slow. And sometimes I think people can't keep up with me, like they're not sharp enough, where I realize in my sane moments that it's really Mm -hmm. just my grandiosity speaking that where I perceive myself to be a lot faster than other people. And I take risks. And I think being an entrepreneur is about taking risks. And so I think that has served me well, that I'll come up with a new idea and I'll just go for it completely and throw, you know, caution to the wind and go aggressively add a new idea. I think being an entrepreneur is a lot about that. And it's also a lot about how do you convince other people to join you in the journey? And I have been very lucky or successful at finding some pretty extraordinary people over the last 20 years, many of whom have followed me company to company. Two of the people that Tracy decided to write quite a bit about in the book, Bill O'Donnell and Paul Schwenk, have each been with me now for about 25 years across four companies. Mm -hmm. And part of, I think, being a good entrepreneur is finding those amazing people and then just make sure you're creating the right environment that is both exciting to work at every day and also where people just really enjoy each other's company and they want to just continue working together again and again, almost irregardless of what the company itself is working on. So one thing I might say about that, uh, my sense of some of the reasons why they stuck with him, these engineers, is A, Paul, as you said, many really brilliant programmers are, are socially awkward. Paul insist that he was once like that, but that he sort of mastered it. And Paul could deal with the suits. He could protect his programmers from jury business meetings and PowerPoint presentations. That's a nice thing. He did make um, working at a place exciting and also congenial. I mean, kayak, you weren't allowed to, you weren't supposed to work late at night through the Mm -hmm. night. You weren't supposed to work on weekends. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is that he had a knack for making money and he would spread it around. There was a time in his life where in the dot-com boom when he made he had a little company. It, was, it didn't even have a product yet, and he got set to sell it. But he was maxed out on his credit. And any sane person, I mean me, of course, mm-hmm. I w- would, have, would have sold it out for just to get out from under my credit card debt. But Paul bargained hard and got $33.5 bucks for this place. Then he turns around, divides up, and cuts his own share in two and divides it up among his employees. People remember that. So Bill O'Donnell, who is the source of the title of this book, remembering those sorts of incidents with Paul tells the story of, of leaving a startup of his own, which wasn't going anywhere, to join Paul with one. And, and he remembers exactly the words that he used to, to explain this choice, which is, someday this boy's going to get hit by a truck full of money, yeah. and I'm going to be standing beside him. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he was, indeed. Right. You know, I, I also, by the way, meant that title in a slightly ironic sense. Since, sure. since this is, that is not what Paul's into, it's accumulation of money. Right. But it's a truck, something that hits you. Right, exactly. So do you think, both of you, if you can answer this, you need to be a little off to create things? It's, it seems to be a quality that everybody who, who is highly, I mean, I'm thinking Travis Kalanick from Uber has like, got some issues. Um, <laughs> his have to do with rage and anger, but um, everyone has a different motivational thing. I think we probably disagree a bit on this, All right. but let Paul. Yeah, I think I certainly know many engineers who are quite sane and yet manage to be prolific but then I'm talking about the Kara, big successes. You know what I'm, you know, you know Gates. Yeah, I mean, I think being quote unquote touched in some way can be quite helpful. And I think being 
you know, brighter than average, and then having the fire where you're driven by something is the thing that allows you to have the stamina to keep going again and again and again, even when your company's not making it. At Kayak, I remember when we were a couple years old, my co-founder and I were getting ready for a board meeting. We were out the night before um, having drinks in Harvard Square. I remember him saying to me that he doesn't think we're going to make this thing work because it costs too much to buy traffic to the site. We're making very, very little money, and we're just losing money hand over fist. But there's something about when you have the fire and you just say, failure is not an option. I'm going to try again and again and again, try a million different things until we find a way to make this successful. And I think sometimes, you know, being touched by whether it's bipolar or some other condition can be really helpful to an entrepreneur to get you to, to push harder and harder. I don't, I don't deny that. I mean, obviously, Paul knows more about it than I do. But I do resist the notion, the romantic notion, the romanticization of mental problems, mental illness. Mm-hmm. It's not as it, what the romantic view of it is that it is somehow a necessary ingredient for mm-hmm. creativity. Like artists um, or Yeah, and I mean, in, in many, many cases, I mean, you know, take someone like Van Gogh, it, it's clearly, it's also an enormous impediment in some cases. It leads to suicide, all sorts mm-hmm. of things. It, uh, when I was a young writer, it was kind of in the air that if you wanted to be a, a great writer, you had to be al- an alcoholic, you know. Mm-hmm. These are clearly a sort of dangerous notions. I, I don't deny that that the, the most creative people in, in almost any line of work are different from the norm. They're different from each other, too. And I, I'm, I'm afraid that, particularly in, in things like entrepreneurship, where everybody wants to have the, edge. Know, have the edge, well, the people are always looking for recipes. Mm-hmm. But this It is, is unusual that so many of them had been outsiders, had had some... Sure, but know. we're not talking about investment banking. You know, no, but you're talking it, about technology, you're talking yeah. about things that cha- that are changing very fast. Right, they're science based. Right. I don't know. I mean, who who are the abnormal people? The greatest computer scientist, uh, whom I had the great privilege to talk to down at Stanford, uh, Donald Knuth, likes to use the term geeks mm-hmm. in, a, in a kind of yes, ironic, nerds, yeah. an ironic way. And he says, you know, he believes that that geeks, great computer programmers, were are born, and he believes that they have always existed among in humanity. Um, he says that I bet the people who built the pyramids, 2% of them would have been great pr- computer programmers if computers had existed. At mm-hmm. that time. That's a really good point. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah. And if he's right, you know, he's, he has some empirical evidence that 2% is about right. I don't know. Does that make those people somehow weird in, in, in some way that, that separates them from humanity? Or I think Paul and I would come to, yeah. to meet on this subject in, in that we, we don't much like the terms. Right. Now these are just pigeonholes that you throw. Geeks or nerds, or yeah, geeks or nerds, or bi- even bipolar disorder. It's mm-hmm. far too broad a, a category to, to cover much of that. Although we know, I I know a lot of abnormal people that are definitely abnormal, and they're well, all. I, I mean, I think it's yeah. quite descriptive. Yeah. I think Paul would admit that it would say that it's quite descriptive in his case. Right. Know? Right. I am low, but. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about sort of the state of tech and where you all think it's going, and also some stories from the book, your favorite stories from the book. Today's show is sponsored by Casper, which has made a perfect mattress and sells it directly to consumers to save you money. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Shipping to both the U.S. and Canada is completely free, and there's a 100-day risk-free trial and return policy. If you don't love your Casper mattress, they'll pick it up and refund everything. These mattresses are made in America. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visisting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. 
Stop paying for the mattress industry's inflated prices. Go to casper.com slash R-E-C-O-D-E and use the promo code RECODE. Terms and conditions apply. We're here with author Tracy Kidder, who has a new book about the founder of Kayak, Paul English. And we've been talking about a range of things and how you get to be an entrepreneur and the various qualities of them. But let's talk a little bit about tech and then some good stories from your favorite stories from the book. Paul, what do you look at as the sector right now? You've been through, you started the personal community, you obviously had a big hit in the internet space, but things have changed a lot since you founded Kayak, obviously. Things have changed drastically. How do you look at what's happening now and what you see as going to happen? Yeah, the big changes from when we started Kayak to now, I guess I put in a couple of buckets. One is just that companies should be mobile first. You know, Kayak mm-hmm. started on the web and went to mobile. We are pretty successful on mobile, but... The initial focus was on the web. And so just make sure mobile first. And looking at how people use their phones, I think it was last year that a study showed that people spend more minutes a day using messaging apps on their phone than using all of the apps combined. Mm-hmm. And so really people looking at their phone less as a web device or even email device or phone and more for messaging and communicating with humans and getting humans to do things for them. So get me a car, bring me groceries, deliver liquor, pick up my dry cleaning. Um, The phone became a way to ask people to help you with things. And the whole birth of the service economy and service on demand, I think that's quite exciting. And I think there's still a lot of companies to be created in that space. I just saw one yesterday that is the office cleaners on demand. And I forget the name of the company, but one of the cool things I liked about this was it? I don't know. No, I think it was a, no, it's a different one. One yeah. of the things I liked about this one is they said that all the cleaners have stock in the company. Mm-hmm. It's like that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I just think a lot more will be done in terms of balancing out the economy that people anywhere, in many cases, can do work remotely. There's a local nonprofit here in the Bay Area called Samasource that I'm um, a donor and advisor to, and they are really all about remote worker in areas of really abject poverty and they can do remote service where someone in a community in Uganda where someone may make a dollar a day and they might pay them ten dollars a day because they're available they're online and they can help right. task people in the US I call it talentism elsewhere. across the globe yeah the and ability so, to tap into talent so I'm excited about those trends excited about kind of spreading the economy around and finding more careers and more independent opportunities of people. At Lola, my new company, it's funny, you know, people have pointed out the irony that at Kayak, we maybe put some travel agents out of business because Mm -hmm. we made self-service really, really simple. And I spent 10 years doing that, working on self-service. Now for Lola, I'm going to spend my next 10 years working on how to make travel agents really cool and powerful and trying to revolutionize the offline business. And the reason I'm excited about offline, one is online travel and offline travel are about the same size. Actually, it's kind of shocking that people mm-hmm. still use the phone. But Explain what you mean about o- offline. Is yeah, calm. what I mean is 46% of travel in the U.S. is actually purchased on the phone. Mm-hmm. People will call 1-800-MARRIOTT or they call you know, Delta Airlines. They call an old school travel agent. They call someone who's a cruise specialist, safari specialist. They call their corporate travel agent. There's still an enormous amount of travel booked offline, and there's been no innovation there. So I know that since 2004 when we created Kayak, all the innovation was done on the online side, how to help people who are using a web browser or a mobile app, how to get them to buy child more efficiently. And what I'm trying to do now with Lola is optimize the other side of the equation, which is 
what is the role of humans in travel planning? Are there ways in which humans can be better than computers? Can humans be better than AI? And how do humans and AI work together? And so those are the types of problems we're working on. I'm, I'm really excited about the space, not just for travel, but in general. I'm fascinated with this topic about should we, as entrepreneurs, should we be building human-led AI or should we be building AI backed by humans? Mm-hmm. And that's a debate, sort of a raging debate we're having internally at Lola. We have this really amazing five-person AI team. And then we also have a 20-person travel agent team. And they hang out. Really so what's f- the difference, human backed by humans and human-led? So, hum- I mean, to be very specific, so Lola is a messaging app. You can download it for your iPhone. And it looks like a chat app. And you're talking with humans but the chat is also read by our AI. We have an NLU capability that examines your text and your past history and makes recommendations to the travel agent. And to be very specific, when the NLU, Natural Language Understanding module, understands what the person is typing, is it allowed to answer immediately or do we wait for human to answer? Because many cases, it has what, we're the answer. Do- what we're doing at the moment is we require humans to click a button to send the answer through because the AI is still in its early stages, it's not perfect yet, and we don't want to have imperfect answers. And so the humans are either proving the AI or in many cases they're overriding the AI, which mm-hmm. is teaching the AI to get better and better week by week. But just this whole concept of mobile phones are now meshing devices for remote humans to do things for you, how do those humans relate to AI? I'm kind of fascinated by the it's topic. A very, it's a big topic. We had a long interview at Code this year with the Elon Musk, who is terrified of it. You know, he was saying that in the end, artificial intelligence and super artificial intelligence, the best we can hope for is they treat humans like house cats once they learn, <laughs> which I thought was funny. The, of course, the worst outcome is Terminator or something like that. Or so, Donald Trump. Or Donald Trump. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. He has no A or I. No, he has a lot of A, not much I. He has a lot of A, but not much I. Um, although I think he's genuinely awful, not artificially awful. What do you think, when you're thinking about this, did you think about the future? Or are you writing just a story about this man? Do you, you, you know, when you dip back into tech, this is, when was Soul of the Machine? That was, was really 20 years from ago, the early, early 80s. Yeah, exactly. What, there, there how do you computer. look at, how do you look at the tech sector when you think about it? Well, this is, I mean, computer technology is the underlying part of everything pretty mm-hmm. much now, everything around us. Which it wasn't at the time. No, certainly yeah. not. Um, and what I was looking at with Paul, I mean, through Paul, uh, a large degree was uh, the commercial internet, though his interests are a lot wider than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I think Paul would tell you is that you know computer technology isn't appropriate for everything. Right. And I do insist that we remember that all of us walk around with the most complex structure in the known universe on our shoulders. There's still no computer that matches it in some ways. I really liked the idea for, of, for Lola. It came right at the end of my research in my book. I just loved the idea of bringing back travel agents because... Kayak, I have always used one. I've got, she's just aces. Uh She can do things that I can't imagine a machine ever being Uh able to do. Yeah. Because it it requires that she talk with another human being. Ah, Tracy, you'll see. They get smart real fast. Yeah, they get smart, but I don't know. The other thing, I never didn't write about this, but one of the things that occurred to me all the time I spent with Paul, there probably wasn't a single day where something wasn't going wrong with this with this right. marvelous foolproof technology. No, no, of course not. No, but one thing about it, I just had I heard a really interesting lecture from, what's, I can't remember his name. It was at the Nantucket Project this weekend, and they were talking about, right right now, AI is around monkey level, but when they <laughs> when they move slightly above my, it just right, it goes like this, like very quickly. And I do know a lot of people here in Silicon Valley, even though, say, the Googles of the world, uh, the Facebooks, and Microsoft today just announced a new AI initiative. When they talk about it publicly, it's all going to be great. 
it's all going to be great. Well, well, I'm sure Privately, they're a little concerned. I think there'll be some awful things, but yeah. but it doesn't. I, I'm really wary of futurology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know the other thing Futurolo- I did. I like that word, futurology. <laughs> well, I mean, predicting the future is a mugs game. Yeah. No, no one can do it accurately, and particularly in technology. I can't tell you. I mean, I I lived through. I watched companies that were. It looked like they were the they were the future, data general, but particularly digital equipment just mm-hmm. vanished. Right. I mean, within almost no time, it seems, and it's because they misread the future. Yeah, and uh, the, technology, the technology. The young eats its old. Yeah, the, the young. It's an interesting problem. I, I there are an awful lot of. I, I discovered this through Paul's company Blade, uh, which had its solicited public applications. Mm-hmm. I, I, one of the things, the quality of those applications was really pretty pathetic. It was almost like these young people are just desperate to gain this identity of mm-hmm. an entrepreneur. Um, it was like it almost, almost like it had become a religion. And what made me sad about that is, I mean, these are clearly bright and ardent and uh, young people, but you, know, you knew it was a little bit like the kids playing basketball 18 hours a day in the playground because they're just absolutely determined to become pros. You mm-hmm. know? And the odds against them are enormous. Mm-hmm. And the odds against these would-be entrepreneurs are also right, enormous. Right, absolutely. But it has become so much celebrated. They become celebrities. Tech people have become celebrities. Right. But they're, but for every one of those... Absolutely. You know, no, no. You add something. I want to be Mark Zuckerberg. I'm like a whole room full of you. There's only <laughs> maybe one here. Probably no one here. Probably no one here. And it's it's hard. It's interesting. So talk, when we finish finishing up, talk of some moments from the book that each of you liked. Give me... Why don't you, Paul, you start, and then what did you think stood out the most for you? There were a lot of really fun stories. I mean, I liked that... And I was also kind of amazed that I didn't actually really read the book until one week ago. Oh, Tracy gave me a copy a few months ago, and I think he told me I had 24 hours to look to make any corrections. Right. And I skimmed it real quick. Mostly I focused on the technical sections, looking for you know maybe technical errors. Mm-hmm. But last week I sat down and read the whole thing end to end, and I was surprised and amused by some of the stories that Tracy figured out, things that I don't think we actually necessarily talked about, things mm-hmm. well, he's a reporter, something random. Yeah. Right. My brother Dan and I were kind of hoodlums as teenagers, and we got in trouble for a whole lot of things and had police cars bringing us home and Where for did various you live? activities. Are you a Southie? I grew up in Boston. No, in West Roxbury. West, okay. Yeah. But um, Danny and I... What did you do that would cause you to be taken um, home? Breaking an entry, selling drugs, mm-hmm. things like that. But at one point, there's a story where Danny and I hooked up bottle rocket launchers in the rear bumper of our cars. We both had 68 Camaros, mm-hmm. 68 and 67 Camaros. And um, we used to get in a lot of trouble driving. So I've had a lot of driving to endangers. Mm-hmm. And we just did crazy stuff with cars. And I was really amused and fun to see that in the book. And then I think at the end of the book, the thing I liked the most is Tracy talked a little bit about the connection to Haiti and why Haiti's important and mentioned briefly a project that I'm working on there that you know, if Kayak was 10 years of my life, and let's say Lola's going to be 10 years of, life, of my life, the Haiti project I'm working on now for the last couple of years, I'm hoping it's going to be 20 years or much more than that. Mm-hmm. So I like that Tracy covered both the past, starting from when I was 12, I think, the opening story of the book, all the way through creating a few companies, and then kind of hinting at what's ahead. And what did you, why did you not ever move out to Silicon Valley? I almost did a few times. I had a game company in 97 where we built a pan-asian community called the world shang chi league shang chi is a chinese version of chess and i think tracy does cover this in the book a bit and we had a hundred thousand people in 97 around the world mostly in china that had accounts on our server and as a place there was a lobby and you could chat and you could play and watch other people play games and yahoo at the time 
had seen what we had built. And today it's maybe a little bit boring, but back in 97, we built this self-healing game replication server that ran tournaments around the world, had accounts, email addresses, you could replay games, web pages. It was a pretty sophisticated system. And Yahoo tried to acquire my little two-person company. And the more time they spent with me, I realized they actually wanted me to move to California. And I was married at the time and just wasn't really an option for us. And then years later, I created an e-commerce company, which I did ultimately end up selling to Intuit, which was an amazing, amazing few years of my life working for Scott Cook. And Scott had tried, offered me to become a CTO of Intuit overall and had tried to get me to move out here. And we even looked at houses one day out here. So I got really close. But again, it just with family reasons, it ended up not happening. Hmm. Good thing. Uh, I'm very close to my siblings. I have one sibling, my brother Tim, who lives in Berkeley, but the rest of us are all in Boston, and we still get together all the time. I've been hosting a dinner every Tuesday night for the last 10 years with most of my siblings, my 90-year-old neighbor who's a mentor to me, and um, just random whoever else is in town. And that's become a really important part of my life, and I organize my business travel to make sure that I'm home every Tuesday night that I can host this dinner. So I love just having family around. It's very un-Silicon Valley, actually. Yeah, maybe. What about you? Tracy, well, favorite parts of the book. I, yeah. though, he mentioned the the worldwide Shangxi League. The, uh, Shangxi League. That story is just an, intriguing to me. Paul basically had was in one of the worst periods that he remembered anyway mm-hmm. of his life, it, and it was a, I, I dare say, a bipolar depression. And essentially, the way I see it, he coded his way, he programmed his way out of depression. Mm-hmm. Which is, and it's kind of a cool story. And there's a there's a dear friend of his named Carl Berry, who was his partner in in this, uh, who I spent a lot of time with, who was very helpful to me who actually got me the introduction to Donald Knuth. I like the opening story of the book. You know, Paul didn't know, had never seen a computer before. Uh, gets to Boston Latin, the Boston's great public high school, seventh grade, joins the computer club, gets a glimpse of this menu on the screen of these are dumb terminals of, his, of the instructor, and sees that he has a lot more things in his menu than the students do and decides he's got to have that menu himself. Mm-hmm. And, and sure enough, he gets it. He figures out phishing before he'd ever heard the, the term. Got control of, uh, and among other things, that gave him control of attendance reports. <laughs> so it made it easy for him and his buddies to play hooky for the next six years, which I suppose wasn't entirely good. Mm-hmm. But, well, he and, seems to have done and, okay. And there's one other story, which is a love story, uh, romance. I won't tell you about it. You have to turn to my book, but it's a, uh, I think it's an unusual one about a really rather wonderful woman. In my, in my opinion, my humble opinion, she saved his bacon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, sort of a, a romance among two programmers. It seems very odd, doesn't Mm-mm. it? No? No, I well, like a romantic programmer. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> anyway, last question. What are you working on next, Tracy? On the, at trying to answer that question. Not tech, though. No. No, uh, no there's a, a, a really moving, spectacularly interesting guy who Paul actually has invested in. Mm-hmm. I met him through Paul, the doctor to the homeless in Boston. This is a spectacular man named Jim O'Connell, and I have thoughts of trying to write about him. I almost like him too much to write about him. Ah, you don't have to like You can like them. It's all right. <laughs> it's true, I know. But I'm, this guy, Paul will vouch for me yeah. in this. He's a, he's a truly remarkable fellow. And Paul, Lola, and anything else? Like to do. The two, the where I spend my time right now, my working time is half is at Lola again, w- trying to re- make some big changes in offline travel, and then the other half of my time I'm spending helping run a network of 41 schools in the Santa Plateau in Haiti 
we have 350 teachers and administrators and 10,000 students. And I love the scale of that project. And I love that when you invest in education, which is really at the root of everything, there are no quick hits. You know, we visit a school, my co-founder, Mike Chambers, and I visit a school in Mirabalay, which is a town in the Santa Plateau. A couple of years ago, we started off on this project to do something in education. We wanted to visit a whole bunch of schools. We, we basically spent a year doing research, many, many visits to Haiti. And I remember meeting, Mike and I met at this school, La Côte and they had smart boards. And I had never seen a smart board before. And I thought, whoa, this is like really cool. There's, you know, not... There's usually not electricity in this school, and these kids are coming to school hungry, but they have smart boards. Mm-hmm. I remember Mike turning to me and saying, at Summits, which is the name of our organization, we might not ever have smart boards, but we're going to have smart teachers. Right. And I just like that philosophy of investing in the human capital. Mm-hmm. And so Summits, to me, is a 20-year plan of how do you upgrade you know, a student a community um, in a region of Haiti with just doing the basics in terms of trying to improve education. Well, on that note, thank you so much. Tracy Kidder, the author of a new book on Paul English, who is the creator, one of the founders of Kayak, A Truck Full of Money, One Man's Quest to Recover from Great Success. You seem like you're recovering very well. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Kara. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show, be the first to listen to future episodes, or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Geography of Genius author Eric Weiner, comedian Chelsea Handler, and Hotel Tonight CEO Sam Shank, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. It has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. <laughs>